Hello and welcome to Sean White's Solar and Energy Storage Podcast. We are going to have part two now of Sean White's interview of Paul Finn, his good friend and the inventor of Community Choice Aggregation. That's also known as CCA. Cool. So, um, so what is it you, that you do to make a living right now? Like, I, I know, like, writing laws, that's cool. Doesn't pay. Yeah. <laughs> 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 they make a nice gravestone for you, but that's uh -huh. about it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> now, I work with local power as, as an LLC based in Massachusetts. Uh, and we work f uh, for in a variety of ways. We have worked for many years as a consultant to municipalities uh, and to CCAs, which are sometimes multi-municipality agencies that combine regionally or within a county. So he worked as a consultant and done a, for, you know, whatever it is now, 25 years, particularly the last 20 years, doing a lot of, you know, setting up these programs, designing the programs, setting up the, the charge and payment system, setting up, doing all the data net collection analysis and GIS, the kind of geocoding and targeting I'm talking about, negotiating power contracts with power companies, uh, writing RFPs for renewable development, Evaluating RFP bids for renewable development, negotiating contracts. State governments like New York State, uh, where we uh, advise the, the state regulator, the Public Service Commission, on their process for creating rules for community choice aggregation, and specifically uh, being hired by the New York State Research and Development Authority. That's the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority, NYSERDA. Uh, to create what was called a CCA toolkit, and that was trying to, to assist municipalities that are implementing CCAs to uh, develop local resources, microgrids, and these more so-called advanced energy uh, due to the mandates in that state uh, to, to enhance local resilience and decarbonize since they've had these terrible hurricanes, and, and uh, the governor made it into a big priority. So... We work for NYSERDA, uh, and and then uh, we're on, also sometimes serve on on various advisory councils to help the states think through this stuff through. Um, but now we're working um, on a, on actually on a grant funded project. Um, again, sometimes we work on grants, and we're kind of shifting back into a grant funded approach, what we call a diagonal or horizontal approach, so that we're not um, just to help these East Coast states in particular. Uh, and, and with municipalities that want to undertake climate mobilizations that sort of already have uh, policy goals or, or, or clarity about wanting to act now on climate and not, not just the usual slow boat incrementalism of local government, but there are a lot of cities now that really want it. Like, let's do it now. Take big leaps. Let's go. And let's transform our energy supply. So we're, we're really zeroing in on those communities um, and we want them to not need to pay us to do it because we know that that's the main barrier for a lot of communities. They just don't have the money. And so if you, if you wait for them to have the money, you're talking about five years of waiting. And so we want to just jump while the iron's hot and strike while the iron's hot. And, and so to, to, to line up what we consider to be the most of sort of ambitious, likely to succeed communities. And those are big cities, small towns. It isn't like one format. It's across all the eight states that have CCA laws. We're just picking what we consider the most advanced, interesting communities and raising uh, ourselves, raising the funds to be able to provide them with essentially free technical assistance to help them launch their programs. And it's really just, it's almost like a, a, a well, you have a, a, a past career in medicine. So it's, it's like emergency uh, intervention. Hmm. We're just coming and say, okay, we'll do it. Let's take care of you. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about paying. Let's just do it. Yeah. And we feel like that's the way to set the kind of examples that are needed because what the world really lacks is examples. People talk about, oh, each community has to drop its carbon by X percent by Y year. But that's not really the point. The point is, is that there need to be clear leading examples uh, of how to do that. And we need communities that have the knowledge and resources to lead, which is rare, that's the minority, that's like the 1% almost, the 5%, the 10%, it's not the 90% of towns that have the bandwidth that aren't too busy you know, trying to pick up uh, uh, you know, uh, opiate addicted 
uh, corpses off the sidewalks, <laughs> uh, which is pretty much what they're focused on right now. Yeah. Uh, just desperate, you know, measures preventing disease from spreading or whatever. Uh, to actually taking positive motions and and the planning of their communities, right? This is not something most communities have any resources to do. So we're just trying to set the examples, knowing that the best, really, the best, I, the best idea is a good example, and because it can be imitated, it doesn't require that you go through the whole process of coming up with an idea, which is immensely difficult and and requires you know thinking. And it requires risk taking and innovation and mistake making and all these things. So we want to go through those motions at a minimum risk way with these what we consider to be really leading communities and create those examples that others that don't have the resource can simply copy or join uh, to create that kind of, uh, of uh, replicability that is so essential to climate action. It's the essential mechanism of climate mobilization. I got, I got a, just kind of a strange question. What if some municipality wanted to have competing CCAs in the same municipality? Would that work? Like, well, the CCA, the, um, the CCA is the municipality, right? So its constituent mm -hmm. element is the municipality. So it couldn't have two CCAs. It could, however, have multiple, and they do have multiple service entities that you could say compete with each other. So mm -hmm. there are uh, CCAs that, uh, uh, many CCAs that have, as I, I think I mentioned before, you know, two dozen or more suppliers. Mm -hmm. uh, and those will be everything from um, wholesale generators that own big power plants to uh, uh, wind farm owners and solar farm owners to small developers, medium-sized developers, multiple technologies, right? We're talking about solar, we're talking about batteries, we're talking about uh, not just wind, but we're also talking about, you know, mm. there are fuel cells and there, there's all kinds of technology. I mean, there's energy efficiency, there's, uh, there's heat pumps and there's, um, uh, you know, uh, electric vehicles. Some are getting to electric vehicles as resources. So there's, there's competition of technology and those are different vendors, different contractors. So in a sense, that's what they're doing. They're creating local markets in which you have two dozen competitors rather than one. Hey, I got a question. What happens if you get a place up in coal country where they want to do a coal CCA because they're cold and they want to heat the earth up as fast as possible? Could you do a coal CCA? Is that like, can somebody do that? Like, like, I don't know, just, just shooting the breeze here now like we used to. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, CCAs, are, they are, they're, they're retail suppliers, right? So mm -hmm. state laws regulate retail supply uniformly. Mm -hmm. So anyone who's participating, whether it's a big utility or a, uh, an energy retailer, that's one of these middlemen that buys from the wholesalers and sells to the end user, or the wholesaler himself, um, they're all subject to renewable portfolio standard laws. Mm -hmm. So they all have to meet the same minimums. Mm -hmm. um, they can't, the CCA cannot be dirtier than what everyone else is supposed to be. So the only real option is sort of to be better, to be clear. So that, that's written into the law. That it can, yeah. It can't be dirtier. I know there's like, I mean, there's plenty of states that don't have a law. Right. So like when they adopt the law in North Dakota or something, or if you were trying to get them to do it, could they make it different? Uh, they could do anything. I mean, they haven't mm -hmm. adopted a law. The law defines these markets. So if mm -hmm. they wanted to adopt a law that said, let's start burning people for the, the, energy, then the, that, the, that would we be legal. <laughs> we want to make it dirtier. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It'll bring on that climate change. Yeah, if we get that more more mercury up in the air, it'll block get the Get some sunlight. palm trees in Montana. Yeah. <laughs> Why can't we camp? I want to be able to look and see that solar eclipse with my eyes, not with any glasses. <laughs> want to it's like when I'm in out. Beijing. <laughs> right. Yeah, everyone wants to be like the Chinese now. Uh -huh. We want a dictator and really bad air, mm -hmm. uh, just and like them. Good food, you know, like excellent food. Yeah, yeah the noodles are are uh, unbeatable. Good people, yeah. very nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but that hasn't happened yet, right? Yeah. And CCAs because they're formed by municipalities, municipalities uh, have proven themselves as climate leaders, right? They are the climate leaders worldwide. They are the ones leading the C forty and. Uh, various groups of municipalities that have, uh, you know, been 
uh, adopting the Paris Accords, adopting mm. greenhouse gas reduction goals, and mm. they're doing all the work for the last two decades on climate change. Not state governments, mm. more than state governments, and state governments more than the federal government. So you have a sort of progressive inclination at the local level. Mm. Why? Because communities, what do they do? They protect local public health. They protect the water and the sewer. They're the ones that are trying to keep life decent for their communities, and that's their job. That's their mission. That's what they do. So they, they, it's not natural for them to be dirtier than the law. Uh, of course, it happens, but it's not the rule. And we've never seen a CCA do that. Uh, I don't. They never have a real motive to do that. Uh, and the states that adopt CCA also, uh, you you know, have because they have electric restructuring laws. CCA is in a sense is a is, is a part of electric restructuring. So. To the extent that you have restructuring, you have competitive markets in some way. To the extent that you have competitive markets, you you shift from the regulator telling the utility, you know, be X percent green minimum to these renewable portfolio standard laws that say anyone who sells power in this market must be Y percent green. Mm -hmm. And so it's a paradigm, right? Once you restructure, you're going to have some kind of renewable portfolio standard. Uh, or clean power standard. Even the the most, the least environmental states have some kind of standard, and so the CCAs would have to conform at a minimum with that standard, and it could only do better at their option. So, so I, I was just thinking, like, back in the day, how did you just one day decide, you know, I'm going to write this law? <laughs> like, how how did that come about? Huh. I was well, I was in graduate school, University of Chicago, and I was. Uh, studying history and philosophy, and but specifically uh, in the in the 20th century, the end of the 19th century, the emergence of Nazism and totalitarian governments, and so I was really impressed with how helpless philosophers were and po politicians to stop that, and in particular the impotence of their language, of their use of language, and and what appeared to it still appears to me to be an increasing kind of loss of power in language where people just don't listen to words anymore and don't observe words as something that might change them, but only as something which is a tool for them to express whatever they think. So you have this increasingly pronounced prejudicial discourse, but not very much dialectic, not like that, oh, you contradicted me what I thought, and so that gives me pause, and now I doubt myself. That's happening less and less, right? Where there's no dialectic. There's just more screaming. And the loss of dialectic struck me as the origins of totalitarianism. That's when you no longer have a democratic civil society. You just have people screaming. And then whoever gets the guns shoots the one, the other ones uh, and, and puts them in a camp and whatever they want to do to them. And so I was concerned with that, essentially, that what's happening, why is this happening? And there's a whole gigantic category of philosophy that's concerned just with that question. And I was studying that that work, but also the political side, not just philosophy, but the historical political side. And so it occurred to me that part of the problem, part of the reason that, that language is losing its power in, in society among modern humans is that it's so couched in this kind of, well, the word reactionary, in a reactionary posture. Um, and, and essentially what could be called criticism, right? So each side criticizes the other side. So instead of dialectics, you just have sort of like hurling missiles at each other, you know? And so you get the left missile, you get the right missile, and occasionally they score. They hit, they hit a building, tower collapses, and everyone, yay! Uh -huh. So now they're trying to take Trump down on his Ukraine thing, and before they were taking Clinton down on his sex problems, and... Uh, you know, so they'll score a hit. It's like, oh, good job. You got Obama. Yeah, he started the drone program. That was terrible. And uh, so now we got all this terrorism. You got terrorism coming back from the 1990s and 2001 with 9-11. So there's like the dialectics have, been, have become sort of toxic where it's just shooting the other side. Uh -huh. um, and that's criticism in part. Right? Criticism is what's wrong with you. I'm going to tell you what's wrong with you. Now, you can tell me what's wrong with me, but you criticize me. I criticize you. Uh, it struck me as being inherently limited that as a, as a for, for someone who's trying to, which I am, trying to uh, assist my civil society with a more coherent uh, and cooperative way of making what I consider to be fairly simple decisions 
like how to manage energy, how we should do energy, how should we do um, water, food, health. Well, how do we get these things? Because we're not even talking about them very much. We're talking about whether I should be a transgender or whether uh, all these kind of culture war stuff that uh-huh. Pat Buchanan called it. Uh, we're we fighting over what, what, what's morality, what's good, what's bad. You know, should you drive or not? Should you eat meat? Uh, all these kinds of, essentially that's culture. It's like religion, basically. Mm-hmm. Do you eat ham? You know, ham is evil. I love ham. Uh, I love bacon. Uh, right? <laughs> and what we're not talking about is how do we do energy? How do we do the things that are impacting the world, causing climate change, killing ecosystems, wiping everything out, you know, widespread cancer epidemics, blah, blah, blah. We're not talking about that at all. So how do we like refocus on what we actually need to, to live well and survive and be, be well and all that and be stable and stop fighting wars all the time? Like because we're more stable, we're not so dependent on oil from 10,000 miles away, for example, that we need to deal with this stuff, number one. But number two that to deal with it, it has to be something that all people can do. It can't just be, what do I think about Trump's energy policy? That's too centralized. I can't change that. I can't change Pelosi's energy policy or Trump's or Bernie's, but I can change my town's energy policy. This is my town. And I can go to the meeting every week and I can say what I think they should do and they'll do it. So let's create a law that allows people to, to run these things, you know? Uh, but also in a way that doesn't get us back into the 19th century. And that would be, uh, you know, peep the people power to you know, take it all over. The, the government should own the utility. That's, that's, that's the old 19th century way. The reason we don't do it. That's the reason we don't talk about it. We don't want to go there because we know that was just as bad as having the corporations own it. So we needed a new version, which is in this case is an aggregation where the community controls energy use, but it, but it doesn't buy all the power plants and buy all the lines and take it all over in that 19th century way. Instead, it just is concerned with what do we need and how are we going to provide it. And to the extent that it builds things to own, it actually wants the, each resident to own it, not the government. Who wants the government to own something? Nobody. Any more than we want the banks to own everything. We should own it. And so if we could return the discourse about energy policy, just as an example, a very important example, into our backyards again, where we say, okay, what do we want to do with this? And direct the, the benefits and the ownership to people, not to government and not to banks, to people individually, like ours, mine, selfishly, economically, not just government, you know, pro-government. Then I think we can get into a new kind of paradigm where we're not fighting this Cold War fight that's over 100 years old now, since all this happened with the Nazis. Uh, or should we be socialist or capitalist? What a horrible choice. You know, it's just no good. We, we need a choice that is neither of those things and also not a compromise between those two things because they're both centralized. Should the bank own it or should the government own it? Neither is the answer. Neither should own it. Not half and half, not public-private partnership. No, me, I should own it. I want to own it. I want my neighbor to be able to own it. That's what we want. And that's different. That's a third option, right? That's different. And I think different is how you get people to disengage from all this impotent screaming and fighting, which is really based on the inability to do anything. Why they get so angry and screaming is because they're frustrated. They can't, they're impotent. They can't do anything. So to kind of open up the power of people to, to move into this zone so that they can start to sort of put their... Put the world back together again in civil society so that it's sensible in the way that I would say life was sensible, you know, in 1800 at the at the town level where you, there's just there's a town and there's some you know, several guys that are lumberjacks and they're big piles of wood and you go buy your lumber from him and maybe you cut your own trees down. But it's all right there. It's localized and people are getting their jobs from it. And when they buy and sell things. They're cooperating and the money's staying in the community and it's, it's, or, it's, it's organic is the term I like because it's natural. It's just local. And to try to recreate that world with modern technology, obviously, we have to use it. We can't be cutting the trees down anymore, but we can be uh, organizing so that we all get solar panels in our yards or on the block or in the building. And we cooperate around it 
And uh, in terms of the use of it, same with electric vehicles. And so sharing is a big part of decarbonization, not just the technology you use, but not owning a car. Share a car with three other families or two other or one other family to share resources, to share the battery, share the solar, share things. Because we have different patterns of life. And so you could use it during the weekend. I could use it during the week. That example, I could use it during the day. You could do it during the night. Just based on pattern of human life, not based on you can't use it a day or I can't use it at night. Just normally I'm at home at night. So our economics work well because this our pattern of life is complementary. So it's, it's natural for us to share this. And uh, that introduces more community, right? Sharing, cooperation, and, and to have local uh, jobs created by it so that the guy that puts it in your, on your roof, he lives in town. And it isn't just, you know, Solar City flying in from wherever uh, or, or, or dispatching some contractor that's one of their vassals to come, but he doesn't know anything about it because they control the account and they control the financing and they get all the benefits. No, he's going to get the benefits. You're going to get the benefits. Why? Because we set it up through the community. So our, now our democracy is working for us. It's local. It's not this abstract national democracy that's supposed to rain dollars on everybody. But uh, but just, no, just the town, which is really, in my view, the real democracy. That's meaningful democracy. If we can make it meaningful and give it the power to be that way. So I imagine there's probably other analogies how community choice aggregation could work for other things besides energy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's farming and... Uh, yes, or... food in particular is an obvious one, right? Because food has been so... across so much of the United States, there's there's no local food market, right? So you have... Go out in the... Go out in Ohio and Iowa and Nebraska out there, and there are all those farms out there growing soy and corn. But those farmers, whoever's left, mostly migrants... Uh, operating gigantic multi-hundred million dollar machinery infrastructure Uh rather than farmers. But they got nowhere to get food. They have to go into the supermarkets and buy food that's shipped for thousands of miles away, even though they're farmers, right? So you have this whole country with uh, much of the country without a real regional uh, agriculture. And it's incredibly destructive, not just for the quality of life and for the, 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 the quality of food, which is terrible, right? Agribusiness food is terrible compared to a local farm in terms of the health qualities, the pesticides, the nutritional content, soil depletion, and so on. Yeah, so the, the, the apart from food, uh, which is a big one, uh, that where you have an opportunity to form a so-called community-supported agriculture, right? So that's, that's something happening in the market where individuals gather together with a, a farmer to subscribe their crops. So Maybe that, we could call it a CCA, Community Choice Agriculture. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And, and so the municipalities can, can uh, fill that gap as well. And, and to help farmers uh, to, through the creation of farmers markets, through the creation of public markets, which are buildings that are, offer free space to farmers to come in and sell their food. Uh, also through uh, municipal, setting up sort of minimum volume contracts with farmers, such as for public schools, for uh, municipal uh, facility restaurants and cafeterias. That is to start to support local farmers to grow not just corn and soy, but you know vegetables, leafy greens, and everything else. Uh, then they, those farmers can gradually transition into local, growing for the local economy again. This is an example that the world needs, right? The entire third world is starving to death today because they're growing bananas and av- avocados and coffee for the north, uh, and which they can't afford to buy themselves because the west, the northern prices are so high. So they're literally having to, to, to import American uh, agribusiness products. Iowa corn. <laughs> yeah, to, to consume in Central and Subsidized. South America. And it's just so sad that, we again, we need examples on how do you relocalize economies in a way at the community level, not the national level, the local community level, so we can have decent food again. The same way that we want to have energy that's non-destructive, non-toxic, and not harming the environment. Uh, these are things that the, that we're not getting, and 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 so the same just to shift from food to another subject. Obviously, healthcare is a big one because the healthcare industry is so comparable. And you and I have done you engaged me in some some healthcare discussions uh, years ago uh, with with uh, about the, the sort of comparisons between the energy crisis and the health crisis because they are so similar. You have essentially a these centralized you know pills and surgery model of health 
backed by uh, the insurance industry um, that control the definition of health and control access to health and define what health is. It isn't just that that many people don't have health insurance. It's that the kind of health care that we receive is pills and surgery. And uh, that itself is destructive. Uh, so to transform health, we need to transform health. Uh, and you as a, as a, as a, uh, a, uh, as an alternative health practitioner, in addition to being an alternative energy practitioner, I think would appreciate this, Sean, uh, that the similarities, right? That the transformation, the word transformation that the United Nation used about energy saying, it's not just about, we need to green energy. We need to fundamentally change it from this supply side, centralized, large model to a demand side, decentralized, small model. And in health, that means a shift from pills and surgery, from, uh, you know, from that approach to chiropractic, to preventative, uh, to uh, uh, Chinese medicine, Indian medicine, right, to diversification of the services that are considered legitimate services that are more effective at maintaining health and teaching people how to be healthier in their daily behavior, which is the primary cause of our disease today. It isn't diseases spreading. It's it's based on sitting around all the time. And pretty much everyone's sitting around all the time. And it probably is related to energy, you know, especially if you live next to a coal plant. Of course. Related to agriculture. They, you know. they, there are multiple overlaps there, right? Yeah, so like it's definitely true. Eating it jack-in-the-box next to a coal plant. <laughs> yeah. Or if you're living in urban areas and you got all the... Uh, semi-trucks going through the ports and all mm -hmm. the diesel generators everywhere and all the uh, peaker plants and burning kerosene and so all the, the disadvantaged, disadvantaged communities historically disadvantaged communities who are being systematically killed with asthma cancer etc by the, all that combustion going on so there's a crossover between health uh, and, and energy um, and obviously food as well is a massive energy user right and some people talk about how the cattle industry is a huge emitter but they don't really mention is that most of the emissions don't come from the cows they come from refrigeration and transportation the reason why you need to refrigerate and transport so much is that the cows are being grown thousands of miles away and brought here and so the 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 long distance supply chain is what's causing the lion's share of the emissions not the cow and uh, so localization of food is a big carbon reducer uh, in addition to improving health and rebuilding local economies. But we could go on and on. I mean, this, this model of aggregation, which really is a shift from, it's a shift within a public local model from a ownership of the means of production, which was Marx's favorite word, right? That, mm -hmm. we would own, yeah. that the government should own the factories and own the power plants and if. And then people didn't work too hard. Yeah. Exactly. Instead, say, no, we don't want the government to own it. We want to own it. We want to own our own energy supply. We want to own our own food supply. We meaning I, you, not we, the people in the abstraction, which is the government, but actual people. So why doesn't the, we get our local governments to help us do that? So we become more self-reliant in our food and our energy, in our health. We're not so dependent on wars in the Middle East to keep our energy costs down or so dependent on the stock market to keep our other costs down. So we're all watching the stock market ticks and, and watching the war news to, because we're worried about how much our rent's going to be or our, you know, various payments we have to make on energy and food <laughs> and so on. These are, it's essentially created an artificial reality in which we, we are, I think, culturally distorted in, in our opinions and beliefs. And in a way, it's bought us into supporting war because we're afraid that if we don't have a big, powerful military, that our economy will collapse. Well, think about how, how corrupting that is to the whole society to be bought into war as an economic strategy. It's incredibly destructive. So localization has this broad implications for, I think, uh, a return to sanity, uh, which is in many ways also a withdrawal from the trend of the last since World War II of globalization, of saying we're going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and American corporations will take over the world and the U.S. government will be the permanent empire of the planet and the whole world will become a giant you know, casino, an investment complex. This vision of the world is what we're really suffering with. And the CCA is, is, an, is an initial idea to show how a different direction could be taken and to implement it, to demonstrate it, prove it. That's why we've given a quarter century to doing this.
So when was it like what year when you first wrote down the first thing about CCA or, you know, your, your first paragraph? It was uh, 19. Well, I wrote a, a paper in graduate school uh, called Positive Dialectics, mm-hmm. uh, which was uh, 1991. And that was sort of the the thing that really focused me on the idea of writing a law, mm-hmm. a law. And I didn't know what it would be about. Mm-hmm. At the time, I got to know, uh, just by coincidence, because I was talking about it, um, a professor at University of Chicago of economics named Ronald Coase. And it was a good piece of luck for me because he uh, ha- had created the current system of emissions trading that we have, so-called carbon trading, cap and trade, right? These systems that are kind of the ruling Oh, he policies. was the guy that came he up with He created the model for that mm-hmm. in the 1950s. Wow. Mm-hmm. So he, I met him two years before he received the Nobel Prize for that. Awesome. He was in his eight, mid-80s. He's British mm-hmm. uh, and just a real mensch, mm-hmm. you know. So I, I actually contacted him on a lark to make fun of him because I thought that the idea of trading <laughs> carbon was just this, what a nightmare. Uh-huh. of an idea you know the solution to too much smoke in the atmosphere is let's sell the atmosphere uh-huh. it's like a dr zeus uh-huh. dr zeus joke uh-huh. uh so i was like contacting so do you to regularly me. call up nobel prize winners and, and make, fun, make of fun, of fun of them, them. <laughs> when they're in their 80s <laughs> well he hadn't won it yet and he was just some professor and i and uh-huh. so they said he was everyone thought he was really important you know because uh-huh. the chicago school of economics is the center of of neoliberal thought. It is the mm-hmm. center of neoliberal thought. So he mm-hmm. is considered one of the bright lights of neoliberal thought at the university I was in graduate school. Uh, I was an interdisciplinary student studying intellectual history, but they let us and, take courses outside of our... And you got some kind of like high honors or something, right? Yeah. I got highest honors in college for, for a related essay earlier on, that was which we could talk about, but maybe a little far afield. Uh, but I did get a PhD fellowship for the essay I wrote in Positive Dialectics. Uh, so they they were they were ready to pay my way through, um, but that really led led me to decide that that I should leave academics because part of the problem with academics is all you do is sit around critiquing everything, and part of the problem of the impotence of language where people can't really do anything about their problems, so they become fanatical fascistic types uh, that want to change everyone else, whether to force them to be gay or to prohibit them from being gay, which seems to be the current discourse we have in this country, uh, because they can't actually do anything, but to instead to, to, to shift from critique and criticism into law, which I thought at the time, again, like a childish way, what's the opposite of criticism? Law. Because in law, you don't even say what you think. You just do it. Just do it. And not to quote Nike, but... No. Instead of like talking un- until you're under a, uh, a ground, just what should we do? And then put it in law so you're not just telling other people to do it. Put it in law. Try to get the law passed. So the law allows what we should do. And the CCA does that, right? And so Ronald Coase's idea about carbon trading gave me a criterion for my law. So my first idea was just to write a law. I had no idea about what. And then he, talking to him, he ended up encouraging me a lot. He was such a... An honest mm-hmm. intellectual, he encouraged uh-huh. me and said, "You really should get into this." And he said, uh-huh. "If you, if you really, because it's all about, as he put it, it's all about the relationship between the private sector and the public sector, which is all being worked out." And he said that the electric industry restructuring, electricity industry is the largest industry there is, and biggest impact on the globe, largest concentration of capital. It is the economy; it's the core foundation of the economy, modern economy. Uh, that he called it the jihad of 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 the uh, neoliberal set, right? That that about which he was very ironic. He didn't really like being counted as a neoliberal, and he was very skeptical about his own theory, which he'd written mm-hmm. forty years before. Uh, so he said, you know, that the real jihad is electric industry restructuring. How that is resolved will define the new economy. And so he said, this is a multi-decade thing, and if you're interested in this subject. I very much encourage you to get involved in electric industry restructuring. Now, I didn't even know what electric industry was. I could care less, right? I was not studying environment. I was not, uh, I thought PG&E was publicly owned like everyone else. Oh, they're a public utility, right? That's what they call them, public utilities, not mm-hmm. Wall Street traded utilities. Mm-hmm. 
so they give this veneer of public. So I fell for that like everybody else. I thought, oh, they're public. They're somehow the government. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And there's this confusing edifice of what's the government or who are the corporations that the government forces you to accept. And so I started learning about it. I left graduate school and started doing research at the public library while I was temping, taking temp jobs. Uh, and I spent a year doing that, just temping and reading books at the library, reading articles and learning about what was where to get in on. Uh, I, f- I found a position through some, some connections in the Massachusetts Senate. And I started volunteering for the chairman of the Energy Committee in the Senate for several months, giving him free white papers and things until finally he offered me the, a job to be his legislative director on the Senate Energy Committee. So suddenly I was in the middle of, because he told me the first states that are going to restructure will be California, Massachusetts. That's uh-huh. probably what got my attention because I'm from California and my girlfriend, partner, and wife, Julia Peters, is from Boston. So that was partly the bells went off. Like, that's my zone. Uh-huh. I can do California, Massachusetts. So I just went after it and I ended up running the committee. And we what got. What year was that? 1992. Uh-huh. And then we got. I was temping in 1992. 1993, early, I was hired. In 1993, 1995, was when I worked in the Senate. 94, I completed the bill. 95, the bill was filed. And the week after. So I wrote this bill, uh, which. So the idea going in was okay, what am I going to do now? I want to write a law concerning climate change in the electricity sector. And so when I learned about it, I learned that what was happening with electric industry restructuring was deregulation, that the British government had adopted in Britain. And the British government, this is Margaret Thatcher's government, uh, was actively uh, promoting their model in the United States. And they're doing it through Harvard University and Stanford University. Part of the reasons why California and Massachusetts were first was the British government was going bi-coastal through the most elite universities to promote this policy. And those departments were actively embracing the British policies. They weren't just receiving them neutrally. Uh, and so I immediately was in contact with all these British people and Harvard and Stanford people promoting their ideas and realized what, what this was. This is a law to, because uh, Thatcher had used those laws to break the, the, the unions, right? To, so it was a neoliberal law saying just get rid of the state and just let the market take over energy and just leave it up to the market and have just like everything else like telecommunications just choose your provider it doesn't matter who it is choose your provider so that, okay so that's what they're up to and my original idea of writing a law was to write a law that presents an alternative again to the 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 little guy who's so angry and frustrated and can't do anything an alternative to that some other alternative and namely that it be based in, as I thought about it, in local democracy, municipal democracy. So what I did was I wrote, I, I, because I was uh, gotten this position in the Senate, which is the Senate Energy Committee, which was writing the initial bill for electric restructuring. So I was personally in charge of writing that bill. That was my main job was to write that bill. So I positioned myself very well where I had leverage. I was invited to the governor's council of advisors to represent the Senate chair. So I was in on all the discussions with the utilities, hearing all their proposals and the whole thing for years. So I was quickly absorbing, like, what are these guys doing? Um, And so came up with my alternative, which was really just something that I kind of cooked up with the help of some other people who were similarly, you know, similarly inclined toward like how to do this renewably uh, with a municipally based, and the original idea was fairly simple, very simple. It was just, let's have the municipalities be allowed to buy uh, based on this opt-out uh, enrollment principle. So instead of just depending on individual customers to choose a supplier, have a municipality be able to choose on behalf of their residents and business, provided that they allow them to opt out. So the, the original idea was filed. It was a short bill, like a seven-page bill. And uh, a week after the bill was filed, my chairman was removed from his chairmanship, and I was out of a job. <laughs> Senate President Billy Bolger did not like that bill. The utilities were very angry. Uh, they did because it was, and it was no one's idea. No one supported the bill. It was an, a concept bill. Uh-huh. And even the environmental groups and consumer groups didn't like it. The municipal association didn't <laughs> like it. Nobody liked this idea. Uh-huh. 
because no one saw what was in for them. Everyone was looking for that in a way for themselves. And so it just had no constituency. And uh, except while I was still employed, I helped persuade a number of local officials in Cape Cod that this was who were really interested in climate change and were, were kind of bought into appropriate technology and these 1970s green energy stuff. They saw it like, wow, this could be great. Cape, the Cape could become self-reliant. There was actually a nonprofit called Self-Reliance, Cape and Island Self-Reliance, that championed the bill in Cape Cod. And the guy that ran it, Matthew Patrick, ended up running and became a state representative from Cape Cod for quite a few years. And his main ally there was, was Rob O'Leary, was the chairman of the county, in Barnesville County in Cape Cod. They teamed up, persuade all the local towns to support this bill. So even though I got removed and my senator got removed, they ended up pushing that bill through and getting it passed. Took them from 19, January 1995 when I filed the bill to 1997 when the law was adopted. So it was two years and later. By then you were in California because by then I was I was in California and uh, I got a phone call from Matt saying it passed. I couldn't believe uh -huh. it. I held out loud. I could not believe it because <laughs> no one supported that bill. Uh -huh. But they did a great job organizing. So by that time, though, uh, I was back in California, and we got some grant funding to push the model nationally. So I was still working on CCA, but in Ohio, in New Jersey, in California, you know, trying to like educate local officials and state officials, and about had this better idea, better than what they were getting now from from California, uh, particularly where deregulation was just passed wholesale in, in 1997. And caused a great disaster in 2000, the energy crisis, which was the, the largest fiscal crisis in the state history caused by the deregulation law. That reopened the window in California to change the law, and that's how I got the law adopted in California. By then, though, I'd learned from just how limited the original idea was of just buying from the market, of the municipalities becoming buyers, that it led them into a very limited universe of just buying renewable energy credits and otherwise staying in the normal grid supply and maybe getting, getting good discounts for customers. And they all got big savings. But there were CCAs that formed in Cape Cod and then in Northeast Ohio, a very large aggregation formed in Ohio. And both were acting the same way. We just couldn't get them to look at localization or decarbonization or they just weren't in that mode. So that's when I wrote this 2.0 bill in California, which I called 2.0, and then I wrote the green bond for San Francisco, which was the world's first green bond. So I get credit for that, too. <laughs> uh, green bond's now a, a $200 billion a year market Wait, Explain what a green bond is. Uh, well, the green bond for San Francisco was, I called the solar bond at the time, right? Mm -hmm. But the solar bond was the original green bond. And the idea is to use bonds, use debt, structured debt to finance green energy projects. Hmm. And so the solar bond in San Francisco was um, was a charter amendment to the city charter that I wrote. And I uh, and Julia Peters ran the campaign, hmm. campaign director. And I was on the steering committee of the campaign, but we got the voters to approve that authority. And it was a, a revenue bond, like a traditional um, revenue-based municipal financing vehicle. In other words, not tax-based. So they can't tax people to pay the bond. They can't raise taxes to pay the bond. They only can pay the bond based upon a project's generated revenue. This is how bridges are built. For example, toll bridges. So the tolls pay for the debt that was, that was issued to build the bridge. It takes that model and says, okay, a CCA generates revenue. If there are marginal savings based on the lower prices from the market, which they were all getting, then those savings could be recommitted to investments and debt could be issued to build local infrastructure, renewable energy, local renewables, energy efficiency, and it included the private sector and the public sector. So the municipality could issue revenue bonds to finance solar on your roof. And at the time, uh, that was sort of the original idea of how to expand to CCA 2.0. There was another shift also of the CCA model in California to have the CCAs, instead of going to the middlemen the so-called retail energy providers who are really buyers and sellers of financial entities that that put up credit collateral to a wholesaler and then sign contracts with users and then arrange for transmission of power uh, with the local grid operators and then they ink a deal and it's over. They're just financial middlemen that make that happen. So instead in California, we had the CCS go direct to wholesale, bypass the retailer. That way, they're in the driver's seat 
when you go to a retailer, it's like going to a gas station. There's a sign with three numbers on it. And you get to pick regular, premium, whatever. And you pay that price based on the time of the year, the time of the day, the nature of your energy use and load, the shape of your load and so on. But it's pretty standardized and you don't see all the parts of the supply. You can't see, oh, there's a wind farm over there. There's a gas generator plant over there. There's a solar here. There's a battery there. You have no idea. They just say you're X percent renewable and you're going to pay Y cents a kilowatt hour average and you can break it down under your rate schedule. Um, so instead, the CCAs are going straight to wholesale, meaning instead of having one retailer that bundles a bunch of suppliers, the CCA directly contracts was, as I said, two dozen, in some cases, over 30 or 40 different suppliers. And so by doing that, number one, they, they are able to they have all the data in their own computer screen so they can see what they're doing. They can see what the cost centers are. What are the high cost centers, low cost centers? How do we reduce costs, right, is the whole trick to managing energy and managing the energy transition in particular because transitions cost. And so if you can manage costs effectively, then you can transition with lower costs. And so to be able to break the supply up into pieces, in addition to financing, because the financing lowers the cost of capital and makes the CCA or the municipality fully in charge of its financing rather than having an outside bank or someone that's taken money out of it um, based on the... Uh, the tax credit, in this case, they're tax-exempt bonds or uh, or otherwise, but they're this, the, the CCA is in charge of its own finance. It's also in charge of its own toll collection agency, right? So it has both ends of the cycle under its control. It's not outsourcing it. And then it has direct control and knowledge of its supplies so it can manage the transition at a lower cost. And when it eliminates things like we were talking about earlier, the capacity charges, which are what's your maximum requirement in different seasons, the capacity tags or capacity charges, they can undertake load reform to target the loads that cause those peaks, smooth out the load, drop all the costs for everybody else. There are immense savings to be achieved through doing that. And, and so the transitions uh, is, is softened to lower carbon resource, but then also by, by en enrolling and listing, this is really our focus, particularly now because it, it's sort of the, the hardest thing to do for CCAs, to enlist customers as investors and get them <clears throat> investing in their own solar, their own resources, whether on their own property or on rented property or on multi-residential property or multi-commercial. But to get the development happening and the local investment happening, that adds more money in so it's not just the zero-sum game of the conventional utility monthly bill wallet. Now it's that bill wallet plus new money in. I'm buying a, I buy my own car. Everyone buys their own car. What if I buy an electric vehicle? Okay, I bought an electric vehicle. What if that electric vehicle is set up to support my solar panels? Now that's... <laughs> We're on a farm. <laughs> what if it's... What if that resource is available uh, as, as storage. Now, this is something that needs to happen now, right? It hasn't happened now because the car companies are sort of stalling and they don't want re reverse port configurations. But there are some that are, that are piloting that, right? So municipalities can organize fleet procurement and they can leverage reverse port configurations, right? That's what they do. They can, they can renegotiate or refinance a warranty. They could buy a bunch of non-reverse port cars rewire them, violate the warranty, and refinance a new warranty. Just do that, right? We need to leapfrog these problems that are just essentially market problems. They're not technical problems. Any electric car can provide you with more battery power than a Tesla wall. And so why not? Why have an electric car and a Tesla wall? It makes no sense. Uh, and so, and to the extent that, you know, we're talking about the flexible use, that reduces the cost of the storage component of solar. So can you tell me how people can find you, Paul Finn, on the internet? Yeah, so uh, the, in terms of uh, contacting us, I mean, Local Power is, can be found on the, on the internet at localpower.com. We also, though, have a project website for this latest phase uh, focused on helping communities that want to uh, be leaders in the demonstration of energy transformation and, and climate mobilization. That's called uh, localgreennewdeal.org. 
So you can find descriptions of our uh, work in that project, or if you want to, you know, really get deep into the material, we've got you know a, a great deal of material uh, at the localpower.com website. And then, uh, how about social media? Well, we do post uh, news pretty much on a daily basis on CCA. Just if you want to sort of follow the latest and greatest, um, you can go to the uh, local power. LLC uh, page on Facebook, just like just like it sounds, Local Power LLC, and uh, the website's localpower.com. That's correct, and you can also find links to to Facebook on that page if you want to use that way. Great, Great. yeah. And I, I was just thinking about like so I've known Paul and Julie for a long time, and I first met them when they were living at Jerry Brown's house before before he was mayor of Oakland, and there was this organization called We the People. And I remember um, going outside with Paul to take a little walk, and we came in, and they like to talk philosophy there and argue. It was kind of like the, their their fun thing to do. And I was kind of new to the place, and we walk in the door, and it's kind of intimidating. Jerry Brown, he's very alpha male type, and 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 Paul walks in. We walk in the door, and Jerry says something, and Paul yells across the room. He's like, "That's the stupidest thing I ever heard." <laughs> And they start yelling and stuff, and it's like that's what they like to do—just you know, debate, come up with policies and things like that. And then um, Julie was um, ended up being his campaign manager, mayor for Oakland. Yeah. And so that's, and then they lived up in Canyon, California, with me, which is in the redwood forest on dirt roads, three hundred people, a mile east of Oakland. And that's what my family has a homestead there, and so we were living in a, in a sort of like a converted barn stables. It was paradise. Yeah. I remember it very, very uh -huh. warmly. We had all like redwood trees and we'd do campfires seven days a week sometimes. <laughs> Just sit around the fire and talk. So those were the good old days. Indeed. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Mm -hmm. And and Julie's here. Say hi, Julie. Hi. Um, yeah, great friends and they um, homeschooled their kids. Good people and living on a living on a farm out here. Thank you for listening to Sean White's Solar and Energy Storage Podcast. You can find out more about Sean White at his links page at solarshawn.com. Thanks for listening. Woo!